Hello and welcome to another episode of Women Who Sport podcast. This week we are joined by Marilyn Okoro, who is an Olympic medal winning 800 metre runner. She's mad about body image and promoting women's sport and she's just got a really, really cool story and we're super excited to have her on the podcast. This series is partnered with two amazing companies, Locker Stash Rugby, who sell pre-loved rugby kit. They've got lots of cool things on their site at the moment and you should definitely check it out. There's loads of links all over our Instagram. And our other partner is Boob Armour, who we've spoken about loads, but we've got Susie Betts herself all the way from Australia joining us for the introduction this week to chat a bit more about it herself. So Susie, like, can you please explain just a, a bit more about Boob Armour and, and how it started? Absolutely. So um, hi girls, first off. The podcast is fantastic. So about two years ago, I had lumps in my breasts, went to the surgeon, and the first thing she said to me was, had I ever received a trauma? So I didn't play contact sport like you girls, and I played netball, and I couldn't actually think of anything that had, you know, been bashed into my boobs. But I then had to go down the process of of something like, you know, looking for breast cancer, which I didn't have, but I had to have three lots of surgery. And it turns out that what I probably did have was the results of a trauma when I was younger. So it got me really thinking, I've got two daughters who both play AFL. And I said to them, you know, do you get many whacks to the boobs? And they're like, yeah, all the time. So then I decided to look around for something that actually didn't exist. There was no research done on breast injuries in AFL. So then I went about, you know, manufacturing and and doing the research to you know, produce a product that actually absorbs the impact. It's like a shell just covering and encapsulating your breast because the research also shows you have to encapsulate, not squish. So what people have done in the past is maybe wear a really tight crop top or something that actually squishes them and they think that's enough. It's not. You've got to encapsulate them and support them. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that your motivation was your daughters. And I think actually for girls that age, for like they definitely feel a lot more confident, I think, with some protection. Well, yeah. And the research also showed you could have no breast development and fall. So this was an example on a beam, a young gymnast, she fell on her boob. She had no boobs at the time. And then when they grew, she had a deformity. So what has actually been good about COVID is I worked out that I didn't have a small enough size. So I've actually developed one that really an eight-year-old could wear. Cricketer would not go on to a field without a box. So, you know, it should be the same for us girls. Yeah, that's so true. And since we've spoke to you, I, I've gone to training and thought, oh, actually, it's quite a lot of times we receive contact in this area. Like even in lineouts for me, if I'm lifting someone and they kick back, so Ooh. many times I'll get hit. And I'm like, oh, crumbs, like, I need my boob armour. <laughs> you just so need it. You need to pop it on. And the product now, all, a lot of the girls in the AFL wear it don't they like it's they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Endorse they it. love it and we've had a lot of interest um from soccer too they're all thinking we have to wear shin guards but why don't we have to protect anything else so true yeah protect the parts that you can protect main message we've got from Susie today <laughs> <laughs> so I guess rounding up on the product if people want to buy it then go to it's boobarmor.au boobarmor.com.au boobarmor a-R-M-O-U-R. I don't know how you spell armour over there. Are you O-R? Or? Oh, no, we're the same. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's America that's different. Yeah. So before we get started with the episode, we do have our hot topics of the week to cover. We've got Susie in on this too, so hopefully a positive thing that's happened within women's sport and a negative thing that might have happened down under. Uh, Rona, do you want to start with a negative? <laughs> Sweet. So negative, I'm going for Steph Reed MBE, who's a Paralympian. She's a long jumper and we're actually going to have her on the podcast in a couple of episodes. She's written a really good article for The Telegraph, basically highlighting the massive research gap in sports science between like male and female participants and how it's like 97% of sports science research is on male participants. Like the participation in women's sport is absolutely booming. And I think the research needs to reflect that. My negative is about the Australian Open, the tennis, due to start in the end of January in Australia, and it's really fantastic down in Melbourne. Because of COVID, it's looking like it might have to move to later, like April or something. It's usually the first tournament that opens the season. To me, that is a negative because I love tennis and it's really all about summer in Melbourne. Um, And there's not a lot of other sport I could have commented on. So 
Fair. That's a good one. I like that's it. That's all right. Yeah. Very valid. So my negative, again, I guess it is a sort of double negative, not double negative, positive negative from the point of view, women's rugby is getting more sports coverage. However, on the flip side of that, England-France match that was on BBC Live last weekend, so many names were wrong. The commentary would be commentating on a player with the wrong name. In yesterday's game, so our club game, two girls in particular... The commentary, we're getting them confused all game. One of them's a forward, one of them's a back, do very different jobs. Now, I don't want to play the race card, but Tat is one of them and she's my housemate. Um, they're both similar race. I don't know whether that's something to do with it, but in the women's sport, in your game, it's happened before getting confused with you and a kicker, for example. It's just commentary needs to do their homework. Like You get paid a lot of money to, to do comms. Absolutely know your players I don't know if that's just a small gripe but I think it needs to change do, do you see it happening in the boys probably not do no I don't think it's as frequent if it does happen it's very rarely and often the commentator will probably then go and correct themselves whereas I don't even think they've got the awareness that they're saying anything wrong in the women's game yeah I agree like I think I think it's so good that more of the games are getting streamed and that we're getting attention and I think we just need to p- keep pushing for more and yeah they were Yesterday's game, they kept saying I was Helena Rowland who can kick the ball 60 metres and I can't do that. So it was, um, <laughs> it was, I was actually getting a lot of compliments I didn't deserve. Yeah. Okay, positive. So my positive is a gorgeous young 19-year-old girl from Queensland who broke the world record in the 200-metre backstroke that had been held since 2014 by a Hungarian. It was nearly a whole second, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, that is pretty big. Yeah, no, very impressive. That's a good one. I like it. Um, So my positive is the Cricket 100 kind of tournament series that happens in the UK. It was meant to happen last year, but COVID kind of patched that a little bit. Um, It's now been agreed that the 2021 series is going to be played in the same eight venues as the men's competition just to raise profile and awareness, which is great because often the kind of women's equivalent of these tournaments you get a really small venue where where not many kind of viewers can come and watch. Um, So I think that's really good that they're joining forces. Fabulous. Agreed. Good one, Bonds, 100%. Okay, my positive. I don't know if this is cheating because I just always use good news in the rugby world when I haven't Mm -hmm. done my research. Um, But I was super buzzed for Sail Sharks women getting their first win. Uh, It's pretty historic for them and they've had a lot of close games. I think they thoroughly deserve the win. Yeah, that's a good one. They were very close to beating us last week. So I'm pleased it wasn't against Gloucester. But yeah, no, that is well deserved. Great. Thank you so much, Susie, for joining us this morning. To celebrate the partnership, at the end of the week, we'll be doing another kit giveaway and including Boob Armour within that. So please keep your eyes peeled. Sharon Martin, take it away. Okay, so we'll start from the beginning. Has running always been your sport? And uh, I noticed on one of the Athletics Weekly articles, um, your mum didn't really want you to do it. So how did you get into it in the first place? So I had a really natural introduction to sport, which was through school. Um, No, running was not my first love at all. A game called lacrosse was, which I absolutely still adore. Um, and I can't wait to play it again. I always say when I retire from track, I'll go back and play it, but I think I should just start now. Um, So yeah, I just was a really sporty kid, naturally athletic, loved team sports. Um, And then one day after PE, my PE teacher, Mrs. Phillips, was like, I think you should go to running club. And I was like, why? (laughs) I'm fast enough. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I didn't want to get in trouble. So I went along um, and I hated it because it was literally running up and down the lacrosse pitches without my lacrosse stick so I thought what's the point of this and then they're going to make me do cross country I thought this is such a rubbish idea but I met a really amazing human which is my very first coach George Harrison 
Um, he's a person that sowed the Olympic seed. Um, yeah, so it very quickly took over, but no, to answer your question, running was not my first love. <laughs> <laughs> that is quite uh, like unique. You don't often get like, uh, well, to be fair, you do have teams, athletes transfer across to individual sports, but not many of them then are able to stick it through and, and go on to Olympics and World Championships and things. Yeah, I think um, I think that's true, especially in the UK. We don't really have that sort of mindset, but I spent five years training and working in America. And obviously, you know, the NCAA system is insane. And actually a yeah. lot of our uh, recruits, I helped with the recruiting, you know, they were transferring from football, soccer, um, <laughs> to the track. And sometimes we had dual scholarships as well. Um, so, yeah, I okay. always kind of harp on about versatility when you're young, just to avoid burnout and trying different things and really finding what your passion is. Because once you sort of decide you want an elite career in something, it's it's that is it day in, day out. So I think when you're young, you really like flipping and change from day to day. And just to you know, that conditioning, I've got so much conditioning from being a tennis player and a netball player and a lacrosse player that translated into me being a good 400 and 800 runner. And even when I got to athletics, I couldn't decide between the four and the eight. So I did them both. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's cool. And at, and at what point did you then decide I'm going to just go for my athletics? Um, I think it would have to be when I made the Commonwealth Games team. So my final year at uni and I thought, oh, actually, I could actually be one of the best in the world because... I think I just go from naught to 100 and I just want to be the best at everything mm. so um, I'm also very vocal about um, one of my biggest I want to call her cheerleaders but in the beginning she really wasn't which is my mama um, and actually she hated me running she used to always bang on about I didn't send you to school to run or read your book and you know Nigerians are very proud you're either <laughs> a lawyer doctor pharmacist everything that you know but you know arts and sports even though we are amazing at sports just naturally because we've got the genetics, but it's not seen as a real career. And I can understand that as an adult, but as a kid, I was just like, everybody else's parents are loving it. You know, all my friends' parents were taking me to training. I was like, why can't you just be on board? Um, but when I made the Olympic team, yeah. obviously she's like, yes, I taught her everything she knows. Um, and she is an amazing <laughs> support now, but in the beginning, it was such a struggle and such a fight. And I always talk about, proving people wrong and the power of no. And that is probably the only time I've defied her. Um, and thankfully it paid off. <laughs> so was it your mum that was a big driving force in you going to uni? She graduated from Bath in, was it politics and French degree? Yeah. Don't ask yeah, me what so I was going to do with that. I just needed <laughs> to shut my mum up. <laughs> um, yeah, Bath Uni is amazing. As you know, it's a centre of excellence for sport and the facilities are off the chain. Um, I had a really good uni squad there. Um, we just wanted to beat Loughborough. That was all our goals. <laughs> but we're, yeah. we're Loughborough gals, so uh, I know. steady. I'll let you off. <laughs> I mean, it is the epicenter of the world. <laughs> um, and the only reason I didn't go there is because they didn't give me enough of a challenge with my grades. They were like, basically, it was kind of, it was a positive. They were like, three E's, just come. But I was like, no, I need I need to aim for A's, you know, especially my mum. <laughs> But no, yeah. Bath was a happy medium and I did love languages, you know, that was kind of my thing. And I didn't want to do a lot of the courses at Bath were sandwich courses. So I just kind of threw politics in there because my mum would be happy, but also following like my passion for languages. And I knew the sporting scene would be really, really good. Um, I initially was playing lacrosse a lot, but then when I got there, I kept getting injured and the physio was like, you're on team bar scholarship for, for, um, athletics so can you stop coming in with a swollen ankle every day <laughs> so I kind of parted ways with that and yeah the driving force was my mom just showing her that I could be you know I've got good grades to get to this university I'm going to come out with a great degree but I'm also going to pursue my sporting dreams so yeah and was that always the ambition to post-graduation go hopefully be a full-time athlete um or did you think that you would need to get a career after university before you could become full-time Initially, it was just trying to prove to my mum that I could get a career out of it. And in those times, I didn't really know anyone besides sort of the big sort of household names like Yolinford Christie, you know, Colin Jackson's, Denise Lewis's. And they were so far from me. So I just thought maybe she's right. And, you know, I always wanted to have this backup plan in terms of having a good education. That was always kind of something that was honed, in, honed into me from very early. 
But secretly, I just thought, well, why don't I just try and, you know, have a career and make a career out of it? Um, you know, and I just talk about dreaming big. And I really did, because coming from where I'm, I was, you know, grew up, Stonebridge Park, northwest London, behind Wembley Stadium, it wasn't really what we thought about. It was literally just trying to get your council flat and, you know, surviving. So that was a really massive. And when I look back, it was um, pretty crazy. But that's kind of me. I just thought, actually... George believes in me and he really sewed into me and made sure I stayed into the, in the sport in those early years. You know, I was, you know, I, I didn't have enough money to get to Watford in the holidays. He would come and pick me up and take me back and then bring me back and then go. So that's four trips, you know, that he didn't need to make, but that's how much he believed in my talent. And when someone's sewing into you like that, you just think, okay, there must be something here. And that was really what embedded that I've got to give this 200%. Um, so, you know, that's where I add George to the mix to being, you know, standing in that gap for me and where I lacked and where my mum wasn't going to um, sort of support me. He did. And he was that support network that was so crucial in the early years. And by the time I got to Bath Union, I was independent and I just thought, OK, let me just carry this on. And I didn't see Bath um, George a lot when I was at uni. Um, he literally used to, before emails even really, he used to write my schedule out, post it to me. And I used to just recruit you know, my guy friends um, who would run round <laughs> the track with me. And then obviously once I got to Bath, this was at college um, or sixth form. And once I got to Bath, obviously the coaches then would facilitate. But I really was adamant that I wasn't just going to jump into the university coach thing. I was like, I need to follow George's programme, um, which obviously can bring tensions because coaches have egos. But they actually admired that a little bit. And so, you know, some of the cool coaches would let their lads come and run with me. So, yeah, I was just very, very adamant that I was going to go all the way and see where it would take me. And but in terms God, of your... Off. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of your training programmes from when you're at uni, did they change much as you progress throughout your career? Like, are they similar now or completely different? So I am like this big fat anomaly in um, British athletics thing. You know, we don't have many girls that run the four and the eight. Well, we do, but not a, not a lot of people like see it through. And I think it's because it hasn't been explored enough. And that was another driver. because I was just like, I want to show that you can be versatile because this is what I saw in the people that I did aspire to be like, like your Maria Matolas and Anna Kiros. Those are throwback names, but they had amazing 400s, 800s, 1500s. And I was constantly getting told, you know, that's not the way to run 800. But, you know, when you've got this sprinter, you know, and I hated mileage, I hated cross country, but I had lungs so I could go, I could basically sprint for 600 and hang on. Um, and that is a skill in itself. And that just isn't really developed here. And what we see here traditionally are a lot of girls that run cross country and um, step down to the eight. So they've got lots of endurance, lots of strength, and they hang on for a fast time. Whereas then I came along and I was like going out with these crazy first laps and hanging on. Unfortunately, that was not really uh, celebrated. It was actually, I was constantly being told, what the hell are you doing? That's not how you race. And any time I got it wrong, it was like this massive, well, that's what, you know, so that's why my coaching team was really like crucial. And the coaches that I had, I just remember my first pro coach, Ao Falola, he was nuts. And I loved that about him because he was just willing to try things. And we were learning like, what do the Russians do? What do the Americans do? And then let's see, you know, what makes Maz a great 800 runner. And he was the first person that I felt like just took me as I was, wasn't trying to put me in a box and said, let's just see, you know, how this works. And that's great until you hit like, the elite level pressure and being on funding and then other people that aren't there day in day out you know feel like they can have a say um and especially when they're giving you investing in you they feel like okay well this needs to be done on our terms and that's stuff that you know i've struggled with my whole career and that's what i fight for now in terms of athlete welfare because it's about athlete-centered coaching and and you know the performance world yes you know it is about winning and losing but there's so much that goes in between and often you know the athletes are the ones that come at the bottom which is crazy because without the athletes there is no sport so yeah it's been a, it's been a crazy journey my sessions I've realized now at 36 when I kind of coach myself a bit haven't really changed that much yeah <laughs> but everyone's trying to be a pioneer in this and I do this differently but I felt like if there was more collaboration earlier um I actually would have got a lot more out of myself but 
Um, it's very, very simple, but we like to overcomplicate things at times. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is so true in terms of the athlete often coming at the bottom. And yeah. even in team sports, like often we'll have a squad of 23 doing a, a similar gym program. Yeah. And we all have very different needs and attributes on the pitch. And it's just mad. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, gone, when you start out, you're very, very um, malleable. And, you know, you're generally, you've got all the sprinters together, you've got all the endurance guys together. But then when you start to develop in your late teens and early 20s and you want to specify a bit more, yeah, there's some moderations that need to happen. And I just think like, the best coaches are the ones that sort of think, okay, I've learned my athlete now at this age and also sort of give them a bit of um, accountability and a bit of autonomy in their sessions and, you know, ask them, do they understand why they're doing that? Or, you know, if you do have a bad race, what, in your words, what do you think happened? Um, and I never really got much input. I was always told and dictated to. And I think that's kind of what let me down, I think, in my, in my career. I think that's such an important conversation too around like coach being open-minded and mm. like cooperating with you as an athlete like just makes such a difference and like your trust for them but also athletes development at that age. Absolutely and that's you know something that we want to get across with the brand you which we're going to get onto later I'm sure um, because it is about you being you know the focal point and actually you understanding who you are for your sport and what you want and what your values are and then everything else comes you know comes in around that yeah absolutely sweet so kind of continuing on from that and know that as an 800 meter runner you've been put in a bit of a box in terms of or 800 meters can get put in a box in terms of like what they should look like and you've kind of gone against the grain a bit with that so would you mind telling us about that Absolutely. So basically, everyone just looks at my muscles and thinks, oh, my God, you're a 100 meter sprinter, um, which, you know, amazing hats off, but it's too short for me. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of I did sprint as a as a junior, but just generally the longer sprint suited me. So I actually thought I was just a 400 runner. And then George tricked me into running the 800 one day. And um, when you run a massive PB by eight seconds, you really can't complain. So I was like, oh, damn it, I have to run two laps now. Um, but yeah, essentially I look, I'm very muscular in physique. And, you know, I was never really self-conscious until my A-level years where, you know, everyone wanted to be super skinny and have that gap between their thighs. And I just thought that's never going to be me. And it really did affect me because I think at that age, I was thinking, okay, do boys like me? You know, do I need to, but I just, you know, it was very early on. I had an amazing tutor who just said, listen, your body is, you know, your weapon. Like you've got big dreams, big goals. You've only got one body you know, nurture it. Just think of yourself like a Ferrari or Maserati is what I think about that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I learned some really early lessons at sort of 17, 18. And when I got to the world of elite sport, I felt pretty confident in that, you know, hey, I've just come on the scene. I've run 203 and no one's expecting that of me. And then just hearing coaches say she's too big to run that event. She's never going to run two minutes. And then I was running those times and they were still making excuses and it was all physical appearance. And I just thought, nah, I can't. And at this point, I started to look at other sports for, for confidence. And, you know, Serena Williams is a big, like, hero of mine because she just owned herself. Um, but, yeah, a lot of the girls I was racing were white, skinny frames. And, you know, that was deemed the healthy, you know, look. And a lot of the girls were running amazing. And that's what suited them. And, you know, that was their somatotype, whereas I was completely different. And I needed to be trained completely different. And that's where it got dangerous because a lot of the training camps I had to go on were not really suited to me and the type of runner I was. Even just being in the UK for six months in the winter was really difficult to get quality training out of myself. Um, so a lot of decisions were not really based on who I was as an 800 runner. And that was something that, you know, was really difficult um, to sort of navigate because I was just trying to fit into this box that I just didn't fit into. Yeah, God, that's so hard. And that makes it hard for you to like love your body and like love being strong and stuff when yeah, yeah. you're going to look like something that you're not going to look like. Yeah, just I felt like I I was 
on the outside, I'm a confident person, but then behind closed doors, I was, you know, I would literally change a thousand times because an arm and muscles are sticking out too much. I used to hate my arms. I love my arms now. Like they're amazing. <laughs> I can say that. But I used to hate my arms for ages. And it wasn't until I'd literally just be walking down the street and people would stop me and say, oh my God, your arms are amazing. Just random people. They didn't necessarily know I did athletics. And I just thought people are seeing something that I'm not seeing. So like something is not connecting here and let's not get a complex because actually this body is doing amazing things, but you know, it doesn't happen overnight and still, you know, I have my insecure days now, but for the most part, it's that mindset and just reminding myself whose, whose opinions matters. And ultimately I have to look at myself every day in the mirror. Oh, a hundred percent. That is so relatable. And like, it's like when I remember being 18 and when I first started going to the gym and people would like point out my arms to try and compliment me but I would be like oh my god like what what's on them yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what did I do did I knock you out the way sorry like that was another thing like when I played netball people would literally come at me and lacrosse as well you know come at me but then they would fall over because they would literally ricochet off me and I used to always find myself like apologizing and they were like, no, it was my fault. I'm like, okay, are you sure to hurt you? <laughs> Just super self-conscious my spatial awareness. <laughs> but we need that in rugby. If people ricocheted off us, we'd be. No, no. Yeah. Well, I, I, miss the the I honestly miss the boat with rugby. Like if I was oh, 10 years yeah. younger. I think you'd rip up we had this conversation with Stacey as well where she said she wished like she wished she'd played and we were like you would do something 100% yeah yeah I mean I only sort of learned about women's rugby in 2017 like because well it's a bad bad story but my ex used to work with was ladies and I met all those ladies and I just thought oh my god I love this game and they used to like might as well just put you on the wing I was like I'm not brave like you lot (laughs) I'll just help with your conditioning but yeah, when I was at uni, I would have lapped it up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I'll leave that to you guys. <laughs> You're doing great. <laughs> no, I think you need to teach us a thing or two. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so kind of going back to those uni days. So in 2012, after you did, you got to chain for full time for a while before that, didn't you? Yeah, so I, 2006 until 2012, 2013, I was a full time mm-hmm. athlete, yeah. Yeah, and then I know that in that year you lost your funding. Can you tell us about like that year in your sporting career and how you adapted? Yeah, the year 2012. <laughs> I'm smiling, but really it's just like, it's very pivotal year in my career. I think that's when I realised that sport, especially elite sport, is not the meritocracy that I kind of had this idealist thought growing up. And if you just work hard you know, that's when I was really introduced to politics, especially in athletics. And actually I've learned as I talk to more and more athletes, you know, it's that sport really. And actually that's the world. And my rule number one from Steve Peters and the chimp paradox is life isn't fair. And so I'm all about sort of leveling that playing field wherever I can. Um, And I'm just a big advocate of justice, but for me, so yeah, I literally had the fairy tale first six years, just PBing every year and going, traveling the world. Uh, And for me, I wasn't really thinking about sort of earning money. It was kind of, you know, absolutely that's, you know, I've earned that because I've worked really hard and it was going to sustaining myself and sustaining my family as well. And, you know, I ran because it was my job. You know, that's how, that's the only reason why I was going to do it. It wasn't necessarily that I was particularly thinking about the fun because when I look back, I wasn't having as much fun as I should have been having. And there was so much pressure because I was literally just, thinking of it as my job and I need to this equals this and so in 2012 you know when so what happened was for people that don't know is that we have a trials and the first two past the post with the qualifying time book their place for the team so obviously it was such hype it's a London Games home Olympics like the last four years have been building up to this and you know, I was in good shape. I'd had a bit of a roller coaster since 2009, picking up injuries um, in 2011 as well. But I was still making teams and just running through injuries, basically. 
Um, and so 2012 was a year where I was coming into it pretty healthy. I was pretty confident, but I think it was the first time I really felt the weight of pressure in terms of the performance coach monitoring me every week. And I was just like, where did you come from? Um, and I had a really difficult relationship with him in terms of, I felt he was just overbearing, but didn't really know who I was or have a right to have that kind of input and power. And he was definitely flexing his power a lot. And so at the start of the year, he told me I couldn't run any 400s because I needed to have the 800 qualifying time. And that was that. And I was like, okay, well, what makes me a good 800 runner is my 400. So there you just don't know the athlete that I am. Um, but we kind of adhered to it. And coming into the outdoor season, I ran loads of 800s to start with, which already never change what you do. If it's not broken, don't try and fix it. I don't care who puts pressure on. But, you know, we went, we, we were trying to, do as we were told whereas that's not my norm so amazing I'd run the qualifying time four times you know I was the only person in the country that runs 800 to run under two minutes that year so you know I was pretty confident but I just struggled with pressure trials every year is my worst race I'm good when I know you know I'm running against the best in the world but the best in the UK is that you've got that kind of you know, that home rivalry, and then you're trying to get on the plane. So I had a disastrous trials, probably the only trials that I really needed to be amazing. And it was just the worst. And I finished fifth and I failed really badly. And I ran, you know, out front and got just eaten up. But, you know, I always say, don't let your highs take you too high, your lows too lows. And that low just completely floored me because it literally was the catalyst to so much, <laughs> such a downward spiral. And I felt like, you know, there was a bit of a personal vendetta there. It was the first year the European Championships coincided with the Olympics, so they pre-selected a team. And I had been selected for the 400, um, which was really bizarre because if we go back to January, I was told I couldn't run any 400. So therefore, why would I be put, be put in a championship without having run it? And I remember querying this with the head coach prior to leaving for the nationals and he didn't take too kindly to the challenge. And we just had this big kind of eruption in the middle of the performance center. And I'm someone like, I literally will blow up or cry. And I thought, oh, I don't want to cry in front of everyone. And I don't want to blow up. So I just ran out. But I was really like, my stress levels were through the roof. And I was literally driving up to Birmingham for trials that weekend. And I just thought, you know, what, what a bully like why would you even bring this up there there was no reason all I was suggesting was how about I run the relay funny that you know I'm a world championship British record holder for that like that makes sense and there's going to be girls that are needing that place he didn't like that just started effing and blinding at me and I was like I'm gonna leave now but that didn't put me in a great headspace for the championship and not saying that that was particularly the only thing but it's always like you know there's little things and it just takes one thing to just knock you off and you know, I didn't have a great championships and I just remember going to collect my stuff, picked up my phone finally. And the first text message was, you've been deselected from the European team, which was, you know, such a blow. And especially with the 800, it is always contentious. And that is, you know, something that, you know, they ended up selecting someone who hadn't run all year. And then obviously she gets the chance and she's not going to run because she's not ready. So that was a place that I could have had and you know probably ran 159 and probably had a European medal behind me and might you know the, the last seven years be completely different but you know that wasn't what happened but there's been loads of lessons along the way and just things like how to deal with you know the media I didn't I think the first thing I did when I did get selected was tweet I'm quitting I hate sport that kind of thing so I learned some really harsh lessons really quickly um but ultimately it was just it was just such a like a, a an introduction to politics and sport and actually sometimes it's not to do with you you know you later find out that my coach wasn't getting along with that coach and all this stuff that's got nothing to do with me and all I want to do is just run and there's so much bs that's in the way so um it was a very difficult and it took me a long time to realize how much that had impacted me emotionally physically mentally because my knee-jerk reaction was like fine I'm kicked off funding because I didn't go to 2012 for my event, which I, well, I couldn't have because you didn't select me for that. Um, so I don't need you. So then I ran away to America, which was a great experience, but you know, that's when you need a support team. And I always feel like you shouldn't make decisions in, in that kind of heated emotional state. Um, and, and there's reasons why <laughs> my life being <laughs> that. Um, 
but yeah, I just felt really rejected by my governing body. I felt I, you know, I parted ways with my coach over that as well and just became this rebel with a cause <laughs> that went to Florida. <laughs> it is such a uh, kind of key thing that needs to be discussed with younger athletes in particular, because I was one of them. I grew up thinking like sport is like the pinnacle, like you're the bee's knees if you're a full-time athlete and mm. oh my gosh, imagine like all the opportunities that you can get with XYZ if you make it. And not one part of me, not that I can remember anyway, as like a 10 or 12 year old really registered the politics of it or mm-hmm. how to cope with those sorts of relationships or yeah. situations absolutely. that are so crap yeah. yeah absolutely and I think when I go into schools I started speaking in schools and I was really really depressed and not really wanting to say anything good about sport I thought that's you know what I do to myself I'm like okay come on these kids are excited and they deserve the best version of you and I felt like okay to be genuine I want to develop them as individuals and yes I've had this amazing um, experience and I've gone to the Olympics but every time a kid tells me oh my god I want to be Olympian just like you I really really challenge them on why and just letting them know obviously they're going to work hard you know all athletes work hard you know I don't care what people say there's not really any there's not a lazy athlete because if you're choosing sport you're a hard worker um some might be harder working than you but I think you are a hard worker but it's really digging into you know that passion and that motivation and that's what's going to count when everything around you and your circumstances don't look like your vision or your dream um so yeah, and I always say to myself, once I lose that passion, because um, that's so inherently me, then I know that it's time to find another purpose and redefine, you know, that goal. It's mad being in a team sport where obviously see a lot of politics because it's subjective. Yeah. Whereas I, yeah. I thought that athletics, with it being objective times and objective distances, you'd have less of that. But like, yeah, clearly. no, it just frustrates you even more because. You know, for me, yeah, you've got like hard London, evidence. Yeah, had London 2012 just been okay, you've messed up at the trials. I could take that. You know, Americans, it's first three past the post with the time, done, no stories. I used to see so many previous world champions, you know, gold medalists, Olympic medalists that didn't make the team for that year. That is fine. But when there's that subjective third discretionary place and someone hasn't raced at the nationals, I made a point of every single year that I wanted to make a team, I would turn up for my trials. I think that's the very least I could do for the support that the fans give us and to go and book my place. Um, obviously, granted, things like illness and things like that happen. But generally, there was this kind of thing where people were running amazing. And then two weeks before the trials, they had a cold and then didn't do trials. And then the week after they were running at these Grand Prix. And I don't believe in that. I think, you know, there's people that are working full time and they're, you know, prioritizing nationals and we should all just go and, you know, the best man on the day or best three, you know, make the team. So yeah, the politics in sport, when it just comes to whether you're with the right coach or whether you've upset the, you know, the performance director, I think all of that doesn't have a place, you know. Because when I started, I just wanted to run and it was something that gave me confidence. So for to be experiencing that and for that to knock my confidence, it's it's heartbreaking. And I just hate that people go through that. It really, really irks me. <laughs> uh, yeah, completely agreed. And we've probably done this in the wrong order in terms of in the years before that. So you went to the Olympics in 2008? Yeah. yeah. So Beijing was my first Games, completely opposite experience, like smash trials kind of new girl on the scene ran pd year um i was just running so fearless and you know i'm quite vocal about bouts of depression that i've been experiencing and one of my best friends was just like so don't recognize you know you because you know the person we know on the track was just so fearless and i literally that was pre any kind of you know nonsense i didn't you know i was just proving people wrong i was out there and i feel like i was just in the process and just enjoying what I was doing and just, you know, not letting little useless voices get in my head. But, you know, I'm human too and everyone's human and you've all got your different sort of emotional resiliences. And, you know, just as the journey's gone along, I've learned so many different lessons and there's lots of potholes I just feel like could have been avoided had I had that mentor just guiding me and saying, actually, this is what 
I experienced and this is how I dealt with it but actually let's see how you can deal with it and that's kind of who I try and be that mentor that I wish I had yeah absolutely like it's so cool that you've been inspired by that now and I think 2008 like going to the Olympics was amazing but that was also a pretty mental year for you in terms of finishing I'm gonna fact check myself here so the GB really team finished fourth yeah no fifth oh it was fifth so (laughs) then there was two countries disqualified yeah so what I've realized is in like my kind of years while I was coming to the scene it was the dirtiest years ever um and you know we were running against you know drugs essentially I've had three medals given back to me in retrospect and, oh my gosh you know, three medals God, we only yeah. one. <laughs> this is getting just, <laughs> just pushing 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 like you know we used to literally finish races and say how are we going to beat that person <laughs> because we know what sessions we're putting in and then someone just comes and completely pisses on you in a race it's just uh. and then you know with Beijing we had so we were springboarding off the world champs the year before we had the most amazing quartet we finished the fastest third place finish ever which is still the national record holder I think it's like three minutes 21 you know two of the girls ran sub 49 seconds come on like I my I was the slowest with 50.2 and so we were expecting bronze or better and to finish fifth that was like whoa what happened but everyone was running like our times were still amazing however the Belarusian team we were like where did you come from like didn't even know you had a quartet like not one of you did the 400 um, and then the Russians are obviously always subjects so did you have suspicions in those races like at the time or were you just quite naive to it I'm always like you know what just fear no one but respect everyone and you're just so in the moment especially the relay I do love the relays because it's like yes that's your team bit there just my fault (laughs) no I'm kidding no you just find strength it doesn't matter how tired you are so obviously usually with the 800 I'll be at the first beginning of the week and then the four by fours at the end but you just find that strength even like when I take it back to junior league days you do like five events and then it's the four by four and you just find that strength so I always love the, the opportunity to come back in the four by four and yeah you're standing there and you're kind of sizing each other up and you can there are some kind of um physical kind of signs of drug users um so you'd be like oh that explains that but it's all speculation and until they get that you know that positive test you just you just go about your life because you feel like helpless and so when these kind of stories started to come up and it's sad now because it's tainted track and field so much. I know other sports are experiencing it, but it's almost like every time someone wins, they're questioned before celebrated. And I think that's so sad. But back in them days, no, people were just taking the piss all over the place. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just to think like we finished fifth that day, we were devastated. And then... I heard about it eight years later and I remember I was in Florida and they'd mentioned it on the radio and talk sport and so my good friend Alex sent me a whatsapp saying hello god got a bronze medalist and I was just like you be drunk (laughs) what are you talking about (laughs) and she was like just heard that such and such Russian has been disqualified and the Belarusian team as well so then I messaged British Athletics and they were like we have we can't confirm anything yet And then a couple of months later, it was confirmed that their tests, because what they do is when someone's test is questioned, they have to check the B sample and then they have a chance to contest it. So basically when it was finalized, we were notified. And so we had a medal ceremony 10 years after running that race in the Olympic stadium, which if you're gonna have a plan B, that was pretty epic. But I just remember standing on the podium thinking, I remember getting kicked off funding and being told I was not a medal contender and all this stuff that just bruises your confidence and just knocks you down and makes you think what, you know, what is my worth? And then thinking, God, this medal would have changed so much. There were so many pivotal times where that would have, you know, kept me afloat. You know, we're talking sponsorship, we're talking livelihoods, we're talking confidence, which is for me everything. When I'm confident, I'm just the best athlete I can be. And I remember watching people race. And at that point, 
I didn't really want to run. I was not really, I was just so devastated with the sport. I thought actually I was enough and I'm always enough. And actually this doesn't define me. And I started thinking about my values and who I was as a person and what I brought to the track. Um, and then you reconnect, people reconnect with you. And I just thought, gosh, what I've allowed, you know, a small portion of the people that affect my sport, I've allowed that to be the most, you know, the biggest voice. Whereas actually there were so many people that were rooting for me that do want to support you. There are people, you know, I just needed to communicate or know who to communicate with. So yeah, it's it's been crazy. And then the March after I got the Olympic medal, I got, we got one for, which was just an upgrade from bronze to silver from Barcelona, European champs in 2010. And then individually, I've had a bronze upgrade from 2011. And it's just mad. I'm just like, you've been robbed of these moments. I call them stolen moments because they literally were, you know, you don't get to stand on that podium. You don't get that that feeling. I know this is kind of shallow, but when you get a medal and you come back home, you get to go in first class. I've missed all those moments. <laughs> yeah, oh, um, like it's those things and it's like it's that level above it's the sponsorship opportunities and the like brand endorsement and those things that you'll never know like it could have happened yeah because just changing my bio to olympic bronze medalist changed so much in terms of how people responded to me and i remember thinking god sport is so faithful but then i was like actually i am an olympic bronze medalist and no one away from me but it was like gosh imagine what i could have had then in the moment um so I just thought okay I need to make the most of this and capitalize on this and actually just know intrinsically that I was always enough um and I have had a great career because I think I really struggled with you know feeling like a failure and that's because I felt like I just hadn't accomplished quite what I'd set out to and, you know, that's, you know, issues with, you know, with me kind of with my perfectionist trait. And when I came into it trying to prove people wrong and essentially I felt like, oh, my God, they're actually proving me wrong. Um, so there was a lot of like mindset and self-esteem work that I've had to do over the last two, three years. That actually leads us on quite nicely to kind of what's next and your involvement with Brand You Sport. So would you be able to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I am, I guess, an athlete in this, you know, buzzword transition. And, you know, I am nearing the end of my career in track days. You know, 2020, I kind of heralded as my retirement year. But then, you know, (laughs) we all know what's going on. And I think I went into the first lockdown and I was just so gung-ho, like so many people. And just like, let's make the most of this, you know, let's get creative but to be honest, I feel like I've been struggling from a lot of lockdowns the last few years. I've had a lot of starts and stops. I've had a lot of setbacks. And so I was very, very tired. And I actually had to realize it's okay to just be still. And I'm so thankful for, you know, our group, the Unlocked Ladies, because it was just such a breath of fresh air, like everyone sharing their stories, everyone at different stages in their career, And then just, you know, there's there's strength in unity and knowing that you're not alone in the things that you're going through. Because I think sometimes you can just get sort of complacent, like, oh, this is just me, no one's going to get it. Whereas there was like 40 other girls that got it um, and just willing to help and share. So I kind of navigated the first kind of few months like that. I'm also working as a crisis officer for a charity that supports um, rough sleepers um, in the Northwest. Um, And that's social work. It's not really anything I've considered I just love helping people and you know just supporting people and building them up and you know coaching um but that was obviously a crazy atmosphere to be in so I was very preoccupied with that and just training and I think I just felt like the the work I was doing for the people that we work with I would love to do this for athletes and I've just always been someone that said you know there is someone that don't necessarily have that support network because that's what I'm finding it's just those people that got to that point where there was no one else to turn to and you know there were many times in my career I felt like that and someone came through and I would love to give that back and the more I spoke to athletes there were recurring themes you know people are working full-time or part-time and struggling you know for basic things things that I felt you know, because sometimes when, you know, when you've got medals and things, you do, people just assume that you've got money and you're rich. And, you know, I was never really taught about budgeting and how to invest my money when I did have it. I put all my savings into going to America. And unfortunately, that didn't work out for me. You know, 
real things that happened and I you know navigating stress I didn't realize that a lot of the injuries I was picking up over the last three four years were due to stress and worry uh you know things that you know in the world people you know have to deal with but as athletes you're just like okay just gonna stay strong keep going keep going so I felt like I just wanted to be that support and fortunately through the unlock program I had an amazing activator in Claire Parnell and she's just like this communications powerhouse and just knows everybody. <laughs> and she connected me with Mandy Ayres and a lady called Charlotte and they, Charlotte Dennis, and they had this framework and resources and it's called Brand You Sport the Business. And you saw that they gave it to me, like, you know, you're thinking about uh, transition and what do you think about this? And I kind of said, you know, well, there's a lot of amazing companies and the intentions there. Um, and I've been approached before by people, but I just felt like it would be amazing to have something that is, athlete centered I think a lot of the time they just think oh you stopped your sport need to get a job okay but what about the people that have jobs and have been working this whole time and I wanted to look at this whole idea of being an elite athlete and what it truly means because I think a lot of people think you're only elite if you're funded and you've got medals and that's not that's not true in my opinion so yeah I love the resources they had and they just wanted me on board you know because even on their website it said for brands, business, companies, and then athletes were at the bottom. I was like, well, first of all, we need to change that to the top. You know, our unique selling point is going to be the mentoring on who you are and traveling that journey. I think transition happens all the way through sport. I'm big on crisis management as well. Um, the other thing that, you know, I kind of getting off the ground is the athlete crisis fund. So athlete fundamentals. I just felt like so, for example, myself right now, I am working and trying to, you know, make my bills every month. Uh, but it would be lovely to be in Dubai with the rest of the UK right now. <laughs> All the athletes are in Dubai. But, you know, I, I, I can't afford to take that time out. And I feel like if I was also maybe, you know, 10 years younger, there would be lots of options for me to turn to loads of grants that I could apply for. Whereas I feel like when you're a little bit older, there isn't quite that emphasis or that support for you. So it would be nice to have some sort of hardship fund, I don't know, universal credit for athletes that they can apply for and, you know, just have that little bit of relief um, because it is tough. You know, I've had both ends of the spectrum. I've had that elite athlete ideal where you just, you know, train. Um, but, you know, for me now, that wouldn't be, you know, my best interest. It is good that I'm working, but also there are restraints that come with that. So there are my two babies now that I'm working really hard for athletes that's just where my passion is and so that's kind of helping ease me out of the world of sports so hopefully when that day comes I won't even notice it <laughs> a smooth transition it's, yeah. it's interesting what you're saying about age we um interviewed Jade Lally and Kirsty Law the throwers Jade Lally she's my clubmate <laughs> oh like honestly they're such a hoot we love them and um she was she had like a really insightful kind of similar story that as soon as she hit 30 sponsorship that she did have then just weren't interested um it's tough it's weird because in the UK I feel like some of our best athletes we kind of mature a little bit later yeah but there's so much emphasis on grassroots and developing athletes and that's fine but you know there's a lot of athletes that are performing and they're on the other side of 25. I felt old when I was 25 and I'm just like, that's insane. Like I still have so much developing to do and age is nothing but a number. You know, your training years might be so much, so much younger and it's just about the mindset in my opinion. Um, yeah. So it was really difficult like just being defined by your age, you know, in addition to everything else. <laughs> um, and I just, you know, I just think, you know, I mean, look at me, do I look 36? No. <laughs> absolutely not. But, um, no it's it's more you know for me it's all about the mental energy that you're expending and training smart now for me and my body's still responding to training really well but there's a lot of stresses I'm putting myself that are not training uh, and it would just be nice to have a period where I could prepare on the same level as my competitors and the people that I'm going to go and do battle with you know yeah I think that that conversation is so important and yeah like totally agreed like you meet people and they're like you're like oh yeah I play rugby internationally like oh cool so you're professional and you're like oh mm. no like I work full-time and as well I think as athletes we're in this position where we finish uni like I don't live on your student loan and then yeah. you can't 
get a job that your peers are getting because you don't have the same time to commit to it exactly. because you're trying to train full time so as yeah. well as being skin you also are like just yeah. end up years and years behind people you graduated with like it's absolutely it's like a really tough yeah. cycle that I don't think it's people a, know about absolutely and that's what I'm trying to shine the light on there's just so many decisions and sacrifices yes that we make but I just don't think it needs to be that difficult and we aren't professional enough in this UK we don't have the mindset and I learned that from America because they invest in their sport all sports and that's what we need we need to have that kind of mindset and it's it does start so my first port of court is going to the university looking at the university system because that's where we lose a lot of our talent because you do come out with these very real life choices and you know the passionate and the dedicated stick at it then have to endure you know all the hunts in the road that we do but I think our university system can be a lot better and so that is kind of the first bit that I want to tackle in terms of um, my work with Brandy Sport. <laughs> so kind of last question to do with your sport. So I know that you were aiming for Tokyo 2020. Yeah. And that's obviously been postponed. So are you sticking out for 2021? Is that the the plan? The plan. So what are plans these days, hey? Uh, so really transparent moment with you guys. I literally don't know. Um, I would love to. I am really struggling in terms of motivation at the moment. But what I am finding is my body surprises me every day. And, you know, I've got some really lovely people that are just like, come on, Maz. All my colleagues are literally, I have a different training partner every day. <laughs> but it is difficult. I know I need to be, and I'm really like, I love things to just be kind of all perfectly set out. And I know that I don't have that environment that I feel like I need to be preparing for an Olympics. But what I do have is me, my mindset, my strength, and I'm literally taking it day by day. And, you know, I am training. And I think, you know, once it gets a bit warmer, I struggle with that seasonal defect, you know, sad disorder thing. Um, and I didn't even think it was a thing, you know, uh, but then we're living in the north. <laughs> my gosh, it gets so cold and dark here. So yeah, I am still training, absolutely. And I would love to have an indoor season. So I'm going to, you know, decide based off of that. And, you know, basically just using these projects to fuel me, you know, they, this is what I'm really passionate about. And I get strength when I feel like I'm giving back and sewing into, into the future as well as, you know, my peers. So hopefully 2021, I can hang on. But at the same time, what I found difficult is not having that clear green light. So I'm staying pretty malleable and flexible and just adapting as everyone else is in the world. Um, to what's happening but I would love I'm just desperate to have another race so whether that's just donning my Shaftesbury Barnet vest and running for the club which I love so much or whether it's another GB vest I can't actually answer but I would love to <laughs> oh love it we're backing you every step of the way for sure thank you last thing we're just going to finish with juicy cues so it's like five quick fire questions Ooh. first thing that comes to mind okay fire away Question one, would you rather speak all the instruments or not speak, play all the instruments or speak all the languages? <laughs> speak all the languages. Oh, yeah, that's Rona's. She likes that one too. Agreed. Question two, if you had a superpower, what would it be? To heal really quickly. <laughs> oh, that's a really, really good one. Yeah, we've not had that yet. <laughs> no, I actually so, might like, keep that injuries. in my toolbox. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No injuries yeah just you know like you cut yourself and it's on back <laughs> okay question three if you were on bake-off what would be your bake-off speciality oh my god some decadent caramel chocolatey cheesecake of some sort nice Ooh, i'm like obsessed that. with cheesecake strong yeah, <laughs> strong yeah question four what sport would you do if you weren't a runner tennis <laughs> nice. Serena Nida. Yeah, basically, you know, Serena's double. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then rugby. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> got to add that to the list. And you could be set, you'd be class at sevens because I'd imagine you've got some pace. Yeah. yeah. It's always in hot countries. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Okay, final one from us. Um, what is your star sign? I am on the cusp of Virgo and Libra, but I consider myself Ooh. a Libra. 
that's cool we haven't had a cusp yet I know I'd love to just you know be my own little person um (laughs) yeah I am the 23rd of September so it's like between the two and I do have traits of both but I think I'm all about balance and fairness so that's kind of more the Libra territory oh love it so who should I be matched up with I'm also single and I need to. Oh, okay. If we've got <laughs> who any... go well with? Who do leaders go well with? <laughs> um, no, thank you so much, Marilyn. I think that that was oh, so, so good. Lady. Thank you so much. I've been well gel watching everyone else. And now I'm so happy that you, know, you had me on. So thank you. I love the work you're doing. And oh, no, you know, thank you. both. Righteous among nations. Cause we are doctors, lawyers, mothers, footballers, first minister, port laureate, we're on the move and I'm telling you, the glass ceiling's going, we're coming through, rise up, eyes up, take the stage, play your game, don't be afraid, you're a work of art, or Jones of art, always be proud of who you are, girl, gotta hold your head up high.